My name is Robert Cavolo. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. Good morning to you. It's been quite a week, uh, and um, gosh, quite a week. Um, this week we celebrated uh, the birth of uh, John's grandson, uh, John Stuthers, <laughs> Pastor John. Um, and, and yet at the same time, in the very same uh, hospital, there were victims from the shooting that were admitted uh, in the same hospital his grandson was uh, born in. And so it's been that kind of week. Um, it was a week where our Santa Ana winds that we enjoy so much, that we're so appreciative of, that create our beautiful climate in the middle of winter where you want to call and brag uh, to your friends back east. We're actually the, the instrument that fueled the fire that burns so many homes. And so we've seen a week where there's been such beauty and senseless tragedy, a week where there's been such goodness and yet destruction just side by side. Um, well, this, this morning we are in our fourth week of a six-week series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes has long been one of my favorite books. Uh, one of the reasons is I love philosophy. And there's lots of genres in the Bible. There's poetry and there's narrative and there's history and there's even love songs. But there's only one book that is the genre of philosophy and that is Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's actually a book that has two kind of authors. There's the editor who introduces another speaker by the name of Kohelet, that's the Hebrew. And Kohelet literally means gatherer. There's a lot of debate about exactly who this person is and why they're called gatherer. Is it a person who's gathering followers? It's a person who's gathering ideas? It's a person who's gathering people around to listen to him? It's not clear, but what is clear is that Kohelet does not give us a linear argument. Uh, if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you do not see this kind of linear development of ideas. You do not see a philosophy that fits within the Anglo-analytic school, we might say, but it's much closer to the continental school. I'm sure you all know that distinction between the Anglo-analytic and continental school of philosophy. Uh, but, but really, what Kohelet is doing is Kohelet is paying attention to the way the world is. Kohelet is paying attention to the way the world is. And over and over in this book, we hear the phrase, and I observed. And so one of the marks of uh, Kohelet is Kohelet wants to give us a clear, unvarnished picture of the way the world is. And this explains why the book of Ecclesiastes comes after Proverbs. Proverbs is written to young people that are setting out on life's journey. And, and the author behind the book of Proverbs is this character, this teacher named Lady Wisdom, like a young professor who's giving advice to her students. And she constantly sets up things in terms of cause and effect. If you live a life of wisdom, you'll have a life of success. And so after reading Proverbs, you can kind of get the idea that I can crush life, I can dominate life, I can do this, I can get it down and I can work life. And that's why Ecclesiastes comes on the heels of Proverbs. Because Ecclesiastes serves as a corrective to the book of Proverbs. Can you hear me? This thing seems to be floating away from my face. Uh, the corrective to the book of Proverbs. If Proverbs leads, reads like a coach that's coaching young people, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes reads like a, a middle-aged, kind of older gentleman that's lived life and seen some hardship. 
okay? We don't want to say a midlife crisis, but someone that actually has a few battle scars. And, and the point is, is that throughout the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, there's this reminder that life is not so simple, that life will throw you curveballs, that it has in it things that don't make sense. In other words, life is not only a place that's filled with beauty and goodness, but also senseless tragedy and destruction. In short, reality sometimes bites. Because of this realism throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, um, this ancient text really can, it can read like a very contemporary piece of literature. It can read as a modern or even late modern piece of literature. It has that kind of feel. It's akin to Kurt Vonnegut's famous trope, So It Goes, or if you've ever read Catch-22, or if you've read David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, the writer of Ecclesiastes um, understands that life can be ironic, and sometimes there's even a feeling of black comedy to life. And I think that Eugene Peterson's translation of Ecclesiastes 3.11 gets to this. He writes, this is his translation, I've had a good look at what God has given us to do. Busy work, mostly. True, God made everything beautiful in itself and in its time, but he's left us in the dark. So we can never know what God is up to, whether he's coming or he's going. Ecclesiastes, the philosophy of the Bible, comes to us as a gritty and frank text. It pushes against those of us who would like to try to manage life with nice hallmark sayings, those of us who might like to hide behind um, good feelings, and those of us that, that, not those of us, but anyone that might think that if we all just had enough positive thoughts, senseless tragedies would not happen. It's a reality check. And some people can't take this jolt. Some people don't like the book of Ecclesiastes. They'd rather relegate Kohelet to being an atheist or a skeptic or just a person that is a pessimist, a glass half full kind of person. But the reality of the book of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet is not an atheist. He's not a skeptic. Kohelet is actually someone of great faith. In fact, if you go through the book, you find out that Kohelet again and again talks about the importance of knowing God. In chapter 2, Kohelet says all good things come from God. In chapter 3, Kohelet reminds us God will judge everyone. In chapter 5, Kohelet calls his readers to show reverence towards God when you go to worship God. In chapter 6, Kohelet tells us God is sovereign over our lives. In chapter 7, Kohelet tells us God created people even though man has devised evil schemes and turn from God. In chapter 9, Kohelet reminds his readers that God allots our days in life. And in chapter 12, Kohelet tells us that we need to honor God throughout our lives. No, Kohelet is not a skeptic. Instead, Kohelet has a certain assumption. The book of Ecclesiastes has a certain assumption, and here it is. Faith is not forged in the absence of darkness, in the absence of evil and pointless suffering and tragedy, no, faith is forged in and through darkness. In other words, contra Marx and contra Freud, faith isn't an escape. It's not an opiate of the masses. It's not the way that we self-medicate, but it's what emerges when we take the unvarnished, 
realistic world and look at it as it is. Faith is what happens when we give darkness its due. In order to see this this morning, we're going to look at three themes in Ecclesiastes. There'll be three points, always three points. You know, three points is good, okay? You get four or five points, I get lost, you know? So this is the the structure, three points, and here they are. First, we're going to look at how life has a dark side. This is a constant theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. Secondly, life's dark side challenges us, and then finally, how faith is forged in the midst of life's dark side. So those of you that are looking for a happy sermon today and a happy-go-lucky text, I'm so sorry, but it's, it's going to be darkness this morning. Uh, hopefully not all darkness, but that's where we are going. All right. First off, life has a dark side. Unlike philosophies that are out there and religious systems that try to soft-pedal the brutal tragedy of this world as merely an illusion or a necessary stage in our evolution or simply the circle of life as we progress into higher forms of consciousness. Ecclesiastes takes off the kid gloves and demonstrates that darkness and evil is a reality in this world and it sets about to give darkness its due. It points out that there is injustice in this world. It it develops lots of different kinds of injustice. It talks about systematic oppression in Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 2. It says, And I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. We might like to think that oppression is something that happened years ago, maybe back when America had slavery, or maybe back in in uh, Stalin's Russia, or maybe it happened, as we read in Emile Zola's Germinal, back when there was the uncompromisingly harsh and brutal conditions of coal miners in the north of France. But the reality is, is that our world sees more oppression happening on a massive scale than ever in history. There is, there is more slavery, what we call modern slavery, taking place than there ever has been. People are forced into conscription, in prison camps, in bonded labor, in migrant labor, in forced marriages, in child labor. And we live in a world where there are people who have power and they oppress people who do not have power. And that is a reality of life. And Kohelet points that out. It's dark and it's devious. Here in Los Angeles, in fact, as we sleep, the sex slavery trade is happening. So oppression is a reality. It talks about the injustice of government corruption. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Where do you go for justice? Hopefully you have a just ruler. Hopefully whoever's in charge is going to go ahead and pay attention to what's unjust and correct that. Hopefully you go to the courts and the judge is just. Hopefully you have you know, police that aren't corrupt. But if you go into society where those who are meant to enforce justice are unjust, what do you do? I remember I was visiting Mexico City and my friend said, and if the police pull you over, don't pull over. Just keep going. I was like, wow, what kind of world am I in, you know? Uh, I don't know if that was just their advice, if that's really the case. But a world where you can't trust those who are to enforce 
justice is a scary world indeed. And yet that is the reality for a lot of people that lived in corrupt societies. It's something that we take for granted in our society that we shouldn't have injustice for those who are meant to enforce justice. He goes into other examples of injustice. He talks about the crazy making social injustice that you can see in chapter eight where um, you have funerals for criminals. If you have your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter eight. 8 verse 10. He writes, Then I saw the wicked buried. So we're at a funeral. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is smoke or vanity. So here's the picture. I call this the Godfather verse, right? You think of it like all the Italian mafia. You know, you go to a mafia funeral, and what's everybody doing? Everybody is in the church, of all places, singing the praises of some mobster who is gunning people down in that same city, right? Uh, turn over to um, uh, chapter 9, just another chapter over, verse 14 and 15. Start in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and by his wisdom he delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. So here's the example of the forgotten genius. This is, a, this is a guy that figures out what to do in a moment of crisis and saves everybody, and he's forgotten. You know, so here you have the situation. We live in a world in which criminals are held high and elevated and praised and honored. And here's somebody that's actually saving lives and nobody knows who they are. We live in a world where everybody knows what Kim Kardashian is doing and no one knows about the guy that just figured out how to save the, you know, how to, how to remedy plastic that's destroying our ocean, you know, and killing our ecosystem. Uh, and this is the world we live in. We live in a world of injustice. We live in a world, according to Kohelet, of poetic tragedy. Are you getting depressed enough yet? I'm just, I just want to check in. It's going to get worse. So, you know, buckle, buckle in. Here we go. He talks about these instances of poetic tragedy. All right? It's one thing to have tragedy. It's another thing to have poetic tragedy. This is in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun, one person who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is the case of the lonely workaholic. This is the person that doesn't have anybody in their life, they're alone, and so they pour themselves into their work, so much so that they never even enjoy the fruit of their labor. So much so that they're never able to sit down and have a glass of wine, sit down, enjoy, relax, smell the flowers, take it in. They're just working, working, working in a way that is compulsive to fill the loneliness. And this is a poetic tragedy because all that that they're working for is going to nobody they love. It's a lonely existence. There's another, another he has these little vignettes, another one, Ecclesiastes 5, 13, 14, little vignette of poetic tragedy. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. This is the retirement gone wrong vignette. 
This is the person that holds on to their money. They're not going to spend anything. They're living such a miserly life because retirement's coming. So they save everything. They shove it away, you know, all, everything for that big day. And, you know, and then finally, right before the retirement, the market takes a crash. They lose everything, and they can't even hand anything off to their children. What kind of life is that? These aren't just, you know, crazy episodes. This stuff goes down in people's lives. And if we start paying attention, we realize that there is poetic tragedy around us. It's to sink even deeper into darkness. Let's talk about randomness. Why not? Randomness, another theme in terms of the darkness in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, there are instances of randomness. Uh, and again, I saw under the sun, the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle always to the strong, nor bread always to the wise, nor riches always to the intelligent, nor favor always to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to everyone. What a world we live in. You know, time and chance. Things happen that it's like, well, why did that happen? Time and chance. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sorry. You know, this last year, a woman from Tempe, Arizona, died after being hit by a self-driving car operated by Uber. How? Do you predict that and keep that from happening to you? She was crossing the street and hit by a car that was manned by nobody. Right? This year, Sam Ballard, 29, from Australia, died because eight years earlier he had eaten a slug on a dare, just goofing around with his friends. That slug was infected by a worm that crawled up into his brain and killed him eight years later. How do you stop that? You know what? I mean, in, in insurance companies, they call this an act of God. Like, there was nobody's fault. This is just time and chance. Something happened here. We have no control. The world is filled with randomness. Um, if you read on in verse 12, this is, this is what it says. Man doesn't know his time like a fish that is taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. People in Thousand Oaks last Sunday were just thinking, like, another great week in the safest city in America. You know, no reason to believe anything's gonna go down. And then what happens? We live in a world where there's time and chance, where there's misfortune and there's chaotic elements. And you think about this little story of this fish. Think about a fish, the fish is just swimming along. Fish don't know anything about nets and people fishing for a living. And the fish is just trying to eat a bug. Fish is doing what a fish does. And, and it gets swept up in a net. It doesn't even know what's going on. Like, why, what's a net? A fish doesn't even know what a net is. There are elements beyond our control that are at work in life. And even our best planning can't keep us from having time and chance go down. I was talking to a, uh, an editor at a university press, and I said, hey, how do you write a book that just really kills it, just really crushes it, that really gets the market, that is the big, those books, those books that really make it, what do they have in common? And his response was, you can't. You have no control over, over whether or not your book will be a blockbuster. Then he gave this example. He said, you know, five years ago, somebody wrote a book, and it was a phenomenal book. It, it pushed forward the conversation in such a compelling and beautiful and interesting way. He said, but people weren't ready for that conversation. And then, and then five years later, 
somebody who's not a very good writer, who happened to actually be a, a few steps behind the conversation, puts out a, a, a much more inferior book, but it was just the right time and the right place, and that book sold like crazy. Great, well, I'm real inspired to write a great book now. Thank you, right? Like, there's an awful lot in life we have no control of. And so, to finally wrap it up, in case you're not feeling absolutely depressed, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that life includes many dark days. Many dark days. This little warm note. Remember that the dark days will be many. And that picture right above there is a picture of the band The Birds, right? You ever heard of The Birds? 1965, number one album, number one song, Turn, 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 which was based on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and refrain from embracing, to seek and to lose and to keep and to cast away and tear and sow and keep silent and speak, love and hate, war and peace. You know, if you go to the music video of the birds, you, you all know the song, to every season, turn, 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 right? right? If you go to the music video, which I didn't want to show you because it would be way too distracting and you'd be done for the, for the day, but it's these guys, like look at these cats. I mean, they're total 1960s, right? And the music video has all these women in like mini skirts and go-go boots. To every season, turn, turn, turn. And I'm thinking, do they realize what they're singing? You know, maybe my house will burn down, yo, yo. Like, no. Like, this is not a cheery text that is part of this kind of break free, you know, new, you know, sexual revolution, turn, turn, turn. No, 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 no. This is not a romantic text. This is telling you that life is going to have its things. Yeah, there's going to be beauty, but there's going to be senseless destruction. There's going to be good days, and there's going to be horrible days. Welcome to planet Earth. And if you don't like how it's going, just hang out a little longer, because life will turn. But you are going to have your due. Life has hardship. I look at my daughter, who says, Dad, I think I want to start dating. I'm like, no! <laughs> you don't want to do that. Not just because I'm a dad. But because I know that when you start dating, you might actually start liking somebody, and then the relationship might not work out, and that's called heartbreak, and that's part of the game, and that scares me. You know, I look at all the things that you know when you have children, you think to yourself, I want to protect them. I want to keep them from life. But you know you can't, because there will be times of weeping and losing and hating and conflict and mourn. And then when you get older, death will start knocking on the door and you will feel it in your bones. Life has dark days. It doesn't only have dark days, right? You do need to celebrate the good things, but don't live naively as if life will not have dark days. So how does this impact us? How does life's dark days challenge us. 
That's what I want to look at. And the way I want to look at it is a little different. One of the things I love doing is I love exegeting art, okay? I, I, I didn't know how to do this, but I ended up teaching a class on theology and art, and I was teaching it with a fine artist, and the, and the world of visual imagery came alive to me. And there's so much great theology within paintings. And when we started this series, we, I said, oh, we're going to do it on Ecclesiastes. I know just the painting, okay? This painting here, to me, is Ecclesiastes, in an image. Uh, it's called The Monk by the Sea. It's by artist Caspar David Friedrich. Um, he painted it in the early 19th century in Dresden. And this painting really is quite phenomenal. I'm going to try something here. Let's see here. Yeah, we got it. It's quite phenomenal. Um, I feel like it's just, every time I look at it, I see more and more of Ecclesiastes in it, right? Um, the painting itself has lots of things going on. One of them is you have this, this narrow strip of beach, okay? And here you have this, this monk who's there, okay? That's a capuchin monk. And the capuchin monk is staring out to the horizon. If you know anything about the history of paintings, when you have a horizon, right? When you have, you have up here, okay, that's heaven, okay? We'll give it an H. Okay, that's heaven. Here's obviously earth. And this, and this where heaven and earth meets that's a really critical place. And this is a monk looking out. So this is a theological painting, all right? It's a theological painting. And a couple things that you notice is that this stretch of land that the monk is on, okay? This stretch of land here, is, it's very, very narrow, all right? And, and this represents the fact that as we look out into the world, we have to do it from our own location, from our little spot in time and space and history, all right? From our own personal experience, both spatially and temporally. In other words, no one has a vantage point of the entire world because everybody has a location. Art critic Christina Van Pruen says of this painting, Friedrich wants us to know that all of our efforts to intellectualize and rationalize the world we see takes place from our own location as a human being. And this here is echoing, echoing what Kohelet says in Ecclesiastes 8, 16, and 17. I tried to observe everything that goes on across the earth. I discovered that there is ceaseless activity day and night, and this told me that no one can discover everything God has created in our world. No matter how hard you work at it, not even the wisest person knows everything, even if they say they do. You can spend your life and you can crawl, go get a PhD, crawl into some corner and become an expert on some little discussion that no one else really cares about. And you can spend your life doing that. I've done that, all right? You don't know everything. You know an awful lot about a little tiny corner of the world. Um, and, and Kohelet knows that, that we have this limitation. But what I really like about this painting, even more so, is that this painting reminds us of the enigma of darkness. See, where is the eye drawn in this painting? The eye is drawn right here, okay? This is where heaven and earth meet. This is the horizon. And right here just happens to be a place where there's all this fog and darkness. See, right where you want to go, right where you want clarity, okay? Right where you want to look and ponder and be able to see that which is understandable. Instead, it's unfathomable. Famous art historian Robert Rosenblum tells us Friedrich's painting represents the breach in human understanding, uh, provoking, quote, ultimate questions whose answers remain as uncertain as the questions themselves. Or to put it in the words of Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in our hearts 
such that we are unable to figure it out from beginning to end. See, the darkness in this world, the evil and the brokenness of this world, means that we are unable to see how heaven and earth come together. We can't see that marriage. We cannot look at the world and have this clear picture of what God is about in this world. And there's a real danger here as we look out into the world. And the danger is this. The danger is, is that we can become cynics. The darkness and the enigma of evil that we see out there and that we see in our own lives can then begin to seep into our souls. And we start looking at the world with a certain kind of jadedness. Anybody that has suffered knows that you have to fight against cynicism. When you are suffering, your world goes like this. And you can get these blinders. And you can start feeling very cynical about everything. And you start seeing through everything with such skepticism. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. When we see how broken this world is, we can start to feel cynical. Think about it. We live in a world in which people can work so hard to be healthy and die at 52. And then we have people that smoke like a chimney and eat bacon every day and they live to be 100. I, I know someone personally, she spent her whole life in phobia of getting cancer. I mean, it was a special diet. It was all these things she removed from her home. What did she die of? Cancer. A certain kind of cancer that has nothing to do with your environment. It's just genetic. She had it from the day she was born, and she was going to die of that, regardless of her life of keeping safe from cancer. We live in a world where you can give generously to the poor and lose everything in a market turn, or you can exploit the poor, be self-centered, and become a billionaire before you're 30. We live in a world where you can volunteer to help those that are suffering from the AIDS crisis. You can work at a clinic out of pure compassion and then get infected. We also live in a world where you can be promiscuous for decades and never get the disease. You can be a Christian who desires, desires to honor God, and so you want to live your life in a way that honors God. You desire to get married, but you remain single because you don't want to be in the party scene you don't want to just randomly date, and nothing happens. And then you turn and you look at your coworker who's out sleeping around, doing all this stuff, and lo and behold, they meet a great guy or a great girl and get married. And then when these things happen, and we could go on and on, cynicism can set and you say, what's the point? What's the point? I hate life. Why even try? Kohelet knew this. Kohelet really understands this. He says, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? So I hated life. You know, why try to live life well if somebody that's just, you know, messing around, you know, and just living life crazy, they, they win the lottery, you know, or whatever. It's like, well, what's the point? And so cynicism can set in. Um, it seems like the wisdom of God just doesn't work sometimes and you become despondent. And then this darkness not only can make us cynics, it can challenge our very existence. We heard it this morning when the text was read, but in several places, Kohelet even questions whether or not it's worth being alive. Now, if you thought this was the most depressing sermon you've ever heard, not quite yet, here we go. 
all right? <laughs> if you want to slide under the pew right now and move into the fetal position, we'll understand. Uh, you know, a lot of news these days about the right to die. Some European countries are pressing for this even more. And the argument is it's simply a math equation. If you get to the place where your good days uh, are far outnumbered by your bad days, then you should have the right to be put out of your misery, just like an animal should be put out of its misery. The writer of Ecclesiastes was well aware of this logic. He takes it a step further. He says, if the sum total of your life is more bad days than good days, why be born at all? I say that a stillborn is better, for it comes in darkness and goes in darkness. Again and again, he raises this question. And so darkness is a reality. People can't take it. Darkness challenges our sense of progress. It can be depressing. It can create cynicism. And ultimately, it can challenge our very existence. Kohelet knows this. Kohelet acknowledges the darkness in our world, doesn't sweep it under the carpet. And yet, this is what's amazing, is Kohelet does not move into nihilism. He does not move into a place of cynicism. Kohelet does something else. Kohelet moves into a place of faith, deep, rich faith. In the face of the mystery of darkness, Kohelet sees a greater mystery behind it. It's amazing how the Bible is not afraid of life's most troubling situations, the darkest things in this world. The Bible doesn't turn a blind eye to senseless tragedy and destruction. It doesn't tell parents who are grieving the death of a child, it's just the circle of life. No, it's not the circle of life. It doesn't tell people that have lost everything that it's only stuff. I had a friend who I went to school in Europe with, and when we got back, her dad lost his eyesight. We were meeting with her, and she starts crying. So we don't know what we're going to do. Uh, you know, my dad's always been the provider. We don't know what's next. And there was three of us, and somebody began to try to give some explanation, and it just fell so flat. It just fell so flat, and the best we could do was just actually to enter into her pain to begin to cry, to begin to feel, and just to be there with her. And the amazing thing is, is that Kohelet doesn't try to give an answer to the darkness. This, this, is, this is the philosophy text in the world. You know, the Bible is the most read book in the world. This is the philosophy text in the world. And the amazing thing is, is that Kohelet doesn't try to give an academic answer to why there's evil and darkness in the world. Now, Christians have attempted to try to answer why there's darkness in the world. We have the free will defense. We have the soul-building defense. We have the privation defense. St. Augustine, good job. We have the contrast defense, the ultimate harmony defense. We could go on. These have limited use. If you're dealing with an atheist who will tell you, I know God doesn't exist, which, by the way, given our limitation of knowledge, so you're telling me you've been everywhere in the world and you know there's no God. Like, that's pretty expansive knowledge. But I know God doesn't exist because of the problem evil. These defenses have some kind of limited use in getting off the horns of a dilemma. But the reality is, is that they're not existentially satisfying. They're really not. Rather than give an abstract discussion or some logical debate or try to explain away the enigma of evil, the author of Ecclesiastes pushes us past the personal mystery of darkness into an even greater mystery. 
that somehow God is going to undo evil. That somehow God will one day bring everything to account and he is going to right all wrongs and he's going to bring justice on this earth. Somehow the writer of Ecclesiastes holds out this bold-faced acknowledgement that life has deep, dark, real, significant, senseless, tragic evil. And yet at the same time, he has faith that in some mysterious, powerful, unbelievable way, one day God is going to set things right. The writer of Ecclesiastes points us to something that was not yet revealed as we know it. The mystery of life's dark side can only be answered by a greater mystery. It's the mystery of the cross. The great danger in trying to explain away evil is you explain unwittingly away the answer to the problem of evil, which is itself is a mystery. It's the mystery of the cross. And what is this mystery? It's a mystery that God entered into this darkness, taking on all injustice and brokenness and the wrong of this world, and there on the cross extinguished its power so as to begin a radical new work in which God would flip evil on its head, extinguish evil, and launch a whole new world, a world the Bible calls shalom, a world that we read about in the book of Revelation in which darkness will be no more. As John Calvin said, on the cross, evil is turned back on itself. Destruction was destroyed. Torment, tormented. Damnation, damned. Death, died. And the mortal put on immortality. That's what happened on the cross. It's a mystery. Don't ask me to explain it. All I know is that in faith, I look at the enigma of darkness and evil, which we can't wrap our heads around. Don't act like you can wrap your head around what has happened this week. And this is just one sample of the history of darkness in this world. We can't wrap our heads around it, but what we can do is we can say, I believe in the mystery of evil, but I believe in a greater mystery the mystery of God doing something beyond my imagination through the jujitsu move of the cross, flipping evil around and beginning a whole new age in which the darkness and the evil and the brokenness of this world would be undone. You know, I have a lot of theologians I love, uh, and it's really interesting to see their responses to World War II. Uh, a lot of them were dissenters, like Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, that they dissented from the Nazis, and, they, and they, they did what they could to fight against it. But I was shocked recently to find out that uh, one of, uh, a theologian I love, Jürgen Moltmann, um, who's written some, some good stuff, some stuff not so good, but some good stuff, um, in his introduction to this little book on the Holy Spirit, he talks about how he came to become a Christian. And the surprising thing is, is that he was a Nazi soldier, and he got captured, and he was in a prison camp with the Allies' prison camp, and he was, in a little, he was in a little shack, and he was there with the heaviness of everything he'd seen, the death and the destruction and, and just the absolute chaos, and he's in, he's in shock from the darkness he's seen. And then at one point, the Allies came in, and they just posted pictures of Auschwitz. They didn't say anything. 
And he and his other German soldiers slowly began to realize this wasn't a joke, that they had been involved in some way with this great atrocity. And he says at that moment, his heart sank to the deepest, darkest place ever. And in his despair at the very pit of darkness, he was there broken, absolutely broken. And then a chaplain came in. He says, I was hoping the chaplain would offer me some cigarettes, but instead he handed me a Bible. I'm almost done. You can... (laughs) Handed me a Bible. And uh, he gets this Bible, and he starts reading it. And as he's reading the Bible, he comes upon the Psalms. These Psalms of lament. And he thinks, maybe there's something in here for me. He starts connecting with these psalms of lament. And then he reads a little farther on, and he comes to the passion of Christ. And he says, when I came to the story of the passion of Jesus, and when I read Jesus' death cry in absolute abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I knew with certainty in my darkness that this Jesus was someone who understood me. I knew with certainty in my darkness that this was someone who understood me. And I knew that the assailed Christ was my Christ. That this was a brother in distress who takes prisoners with him on the way to resurrection life. In the cross, God reveals himself as the God who descends into the very heart of darkness, into the very depth and source of all the chaos and darkness that we see in our world. And there takes it upon himself and extinguishes the power of that darkness. And this is a mystery, but it's a mystery that Christians have been owning for 2,000 years. We've been basing our lives on that the resurrected body of Christ is the first glimpse of the new world that God is going to bring through his power that he accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So the question this morning, friends, is this. If you are not a Christian and you have encountered the mystery of darkness, are you willing to push farther into the mystery of the cross? Are you going to stop with one mystery and not go to the greater mystery? If you're a Christian this morning, what is the darkness you're dealing with? You know, Jesus was a man acquainted with grief and suffering. And he wants to meet you in that darkness. He wants to be with you in that darkness. There is no darkness that he himself has not known. And he wants to be with you this morning. (coughs) Praise be to God. Amen.